what if this becomes the monetary base layer, as you described, right? The, the, the monetary protocol for the global monetary system, which is 86 trillion. Okay. So you got a, you know, 86 X upside. Maybe you should own just a little. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I'm joined by Mark Yusko of Morgan Creek Asset Management. We discuss Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as financial technologies and also look at how these innovative assets correlate with traditional portfolio assets. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. And now on to today's episode. Today, I've got with me Mark Yusko, um, Morgan Creek Digital and Morgan Creek Asset Management. So Mark has uh, had a number of years in, in the financial space, traditional space, so I thought it'd be great to have him on. He's kind of navigated the... Uh, Bitcoin and crypto markets as well. So I wanted to have Mark on to kind of give us both sides of the fence. So Mark, um, if you could give us a little background about yourself, that'd be great. One, great to be here. Great to, to spend some time together. And two, I'll try to give you the short version, although I, I admit I don't do short well, uh, but the, the short version of background is, you know, I, I grew up all over, went to a couple of different high schools, went to school in the Midwest at Notre Dame. Uh, thought I wanted to be a doctor, decided not to be a doctor, went to business school right out of undergrad, which I don't recommend, but it worked for me. And uh, then took the first job, right, that I could get, which was an insurance company. Uh, my life is a series of happy accidents. Someone told me it's really divine intervention, but uh, the guy who was doing investments retired. So I got to take over investing. So I managed fixed income, very exciting fixed income portfolio for an insurance company. I think you did some of that. And but nice thing is I, I learned the, the business of manager selection. We outsourced some of it to, I would say I hired Dan Fuss before he was famous at Loomis Sales. And uh, also we ran some in, internally. So I learned a little bit about duration and, and risk management and things like that. Uh, then I went to work for an equity shop and I probably would have stayed there forever, but I got the call. And those who follow college football knew Lou Holtz was at Minnesota. He had a lifetime contract until Notre Dame called. And then he could go to ND. He went, had a great record there. Uh, I got the call. So I was working at a firm in Chicago. We had about a billion dollars back when a billion dollars was a lot of money. We were the first quant shop. Uh, we were run by two professors at Northwestern, a firm called Discipline Investment Advisors. And we had an advantage in that we, you know, pre-PCs, we had a computer system that ran on the mainframe computer at Northwestern that screened for value stocks. And we were the first customer at CompuStat. We got the tape four days before everybody else. So we literally had an arbitrage and it was a good gig, but I wanted to go back to the alma mater. I went back and I, I, I realized that the world wasn't just about picking stocks and bonds. It was actually about managing assets and asset classes and that asset allocation really drove returns. And so I uh, learned the endowment model, spent you know five years at Notre Dame. Then I got the call to come down here to North Carolina and uh, be the CIO. As the number two guy at, at Notre Dame was always going to be the number two guy. Number one guy was only a year ahead of me. Uh, he finally just retired this year. 
Uh, I have a 10 year old, so I can't retire. So I got to keep doing this, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm actually energized now because, you know, I, I came down, I did uh, because I found crypto and I'll explain how that happened. But uh, I came down, did North Carolina for seven years, did a lot in the alternative space. I mean, we were big users of hedge funds, venture capital, private. And one of the things that I've always believed is, you know, there are four core asset classes, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, but there's a fifth uh, called innovation. And innovation actually creates the businesses that allow you to have stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. And so I've always overweighted innovation, whether it's at Notre Dame or UNC or at Morgan Creek. So I left in 2004 to form Morgan Creek. So now we've been at this about 17 years, bringing that endowment model of investing to others. Well, what does that mean? It means having a value bias, having a long-term focus, using time arbitrage to your advantage, embracing innovation as an asset class. And so all along, we've been overweight venture capital, overweight new ideas. And so uh, when I got exposed to crypto in or blockchain technology and crypto eight years ago, I joke I was I was too stupid to figure it out. I was not running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student. So in 2013, I didn't really get it. Um, I didn't get Bitcoin. I didn't get cryptocurrency. I got blockchain pretty quickly because it was infrastructure. It was picks and shovels. And uh, it, it became apparent to me pretty quickly that uh, we were just going to rebuild all of the architecture of the financial system uh, on new technology. And this is just an evolution of technology that I'm sure we'll talk about later. But my clients didn't like that, right? I wrote one paragraph in first quarter 2014 in a 40 page letter explaining how Bitcoin might be an interesting special situation, uh, 500 bucks at the time. And literally had people say, we'll fire you. Don't talk about this stupid stuff. This is for drug dealers and terrorists and don't talk about this. Now, the next paragraph was about Saudi equities, which those probably describe Saudi equities more than Bitcoin, um, you know, bad guys, and, uh, but no one cared, right? They, they didn't think Saudi equities were anything to talk about, but Bitcoin, stay away. But over the course of the next few years, we, we did finally come to get some of our clients to believe in it and, and really starting in 2018, really went kind of all in started a venture fund and and now we have a series of venture funds and and a bitcoin fund and and uh yeah, i say to sum up all of that i told you i don't do short well but to sum all that up i uh i said chapter one i worked for not for profits and i loved it right i, I loved working at notre dame i loved working at unc chapter two i built morgan creek into a, a very nice kind of manager of managers and and financial asset you know manager ria wealth management firm Chapter three, um, spend you know the next couple decades focused on, on blockchain and crypto, and then chapter four I'll teach, and uh, so that's kind of the plan. Awesome, that sounds um, a little bit kind of the Ray Dalio model. He's uh, in the teaching stage, so yeah, um, great background. And for the listeners, uh, one of my favorite things um, about Mark is his weekly around the world with Usco. Yeah. Um, I don't hit it every week just with time and whatnot, but it's a great um, just asset allocation, asset overview. Um, doesn't go well, too I appreciate deep. that. And it's funny, it, it started off 
It's interesting. I, I, I actually didn't come up with the name. Uh, start off, we had a relationship with Merrill Lynch many, many years ago uh, to sell a product. And, and the, their head of marketing um, said, we're going to do a call-in radio show. And we're going to call it Around the World with Yusko. I'm like, no, that's a stupid name. Why, why would you call it that? He says, because people don't want to call in and talk to the portfolio manager of the XYZ fund. They want to talk to a person. So we're going to call it Around the World with Yusko. And sure enough, he, he started this. And uh, we had 1,000 FAs call in on a monthly basis. And I was like, wow, okay. They really do want to talk to a person. And we would take live questions and uh, we would talk about whatever was topical at, at the time. And, and it was great. And so then I, I kind of inculcated that inside Morgan Creek later. And, and we started doing these monthly webinars when kind of Zoom came around, kind of pre-pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, it went to weekly because people were really interested in what was going on. And like, well, if you'll listen to me every week, I'll, I'll do it every week and, and had a lot of fun. Now we've gone back this year to more monthly because we got a little Zoom fatigue, but uh, I do love them because it gives you a chance to gather information, right? I do my own slides and I'm famous for my long slide presentations, um, but I, I, I get to gather the information. I get to sift through it. And I get to look for trends and then I get to, you know, uh, go back and forth with people on Twitter, which I find is is the best way to test ideas. Right? If you throw an idea out on Twitter and everybody loves it, you better find a new idea because it's already in the price. If you throw out something, everybody says, oh, that's stupid. You're an idiot. I'm like, oh, I'm onto something. That's interesting. So I tend to use use that to, to gauge interest in topics. And you know, lately we've been talking about this whole inflation deflation debate and, and having a lot of fun with that. But uh, I've done a number of around the worlds. Uh, and for anyone who cares, you can go to YouTube and type in around the world with Yusko and it, the uh, channel will pop up and you can subscribe. And, and there's a bunch of videos out there of the, the presentation. So you can go back and look at old ones, but I've done three on crypto. One called blockchain is big, really big, kind of explaining why uh, blockchain is going to be the new infrastructure for the, the new financial system, the future of finance. Uh, two, it's called crypto capitalism. Why all of capitalism is moving toward digital so that every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every piece of art, every piece of real estate, every private business, every everything will be tokenized, digitized, and will trade 24-7 globally, borderlessly over blockchain rails. And then one called hashtag get off zero. I'm big on my hashtags uh, and hashtag get off zero is all about the fact that we'll look back five years from now. And as a fiduciary, I believe it will be deemed irresponsible to have zero exposure to digital assets. So you have to get off zero. You have to have exposure to these assets in your portfolio. And then, and that's important. I think I agree with you too. Um, being on the wealth management side of the business, fiduciary comes up a lot. Um old school warehouse model, not so much. It's, Hey, what products do we have? What has the highest commission? And that's kind of what could yeah, right or wrong. That's just kind of eighties, nineties finance. Um, the internet has kind of exposed that. Um, so the business yep. has gotten better forced people not to put everything in a product and, and put fees on it and be more of a true fiduciary. 
uh, all good things. Um, some of the stuff you touched on, innovation as an asset class. Over time, you've used Twitter as a great resource for anything you want to know. Or frankly, if if you kind of dive into to those areas. And a couple of things I wanted to talk about was one, you going from a traditional space, endowments, yep. institutions, very, you know, don't talk about this Bitcoin thing. We don't want to hear it. We'll pull our money to going across the gap and just diving headfirst into Bitcoin and, and setting up a couple of different funds and investing yeah. directly and becoming a source of knowledge. I think some of that probably stems from decades of background in the financial markets. So it kind of gives you a leg up, you know, maybe you're not going to go build Know, a token or a coin yourself, but right. you understand the price. So can you talk a little bit about transitioning from the traditional world to the new world and what that looks yeah, like? Yeah, it's and great. Great point and great question. And um, look, I, I, I was lucky in the sense that I, I sat in a chair at, at Notre Dame where I, I got exposure to this idea of innovation as an asset class early. And we did a lot of venture capital and this was in the early nineties. And it was during the wave of the internet. And, you know, I tell the story that, you know, we invested in a company called Sequoia back before Sequoia was famous, right? They weren't a brand name. Michael Moritz had not done a deal yet. Uh, in fact, the firm had split into two firms you know, Don Valentine had hired Michael Morris. He was a Wall Street Journal reporter. The other partners were like, what the heck? What, what is that? How does, how does that work? You know, so we're leaving and no one talks about the other partners. They talk about Sequoia. And Michael now is one of the greatest venture capitalists of all time. And Don was, God rest his soul, maybe the great. Um, but, you know, we gave them $5 million. They put, you know, 10% of it in this little company called Google, which at the time sounded like a stupid idea because back then it wasn't a verb. And uh, there's the number 21 search engine. Like, what do we need another search engine for, right? There's Alta Vista, there's Web Crawler, there's Ask Jeez. Jeeves. I mean, why, why do you need another one? Well, what we didn't understand is that they were innovating a different way of doing search. In fact, innovating a different business model altogether. They were literally changing the world. And uh, it's been pretty good. So that, that you know, half a million dollars turned into 200 million. And uh, I would say there should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. And it made me reflect on, you know, I said, I, I, I grew up just by a series of happy accidents in the traditional world, right? I worked for an insurance company, which is a great stat. I guess two out of every five people at some point in their career work for insurance. Wow. Pretty I amazing. Didn't know that. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And if you think about it, right, you think about all the people you know. I mean, my wife worked mm -hmm. at a reinsurance company. I worked in an insurance company, so we fit. And I know plenty of people who either work for, you know, claims adjusters or claims companies or healthcare insurers or property casualties. So it's just an interesting stat. Um, but but I learned all about fixed income, traditional fixed income. And and then I went for work work to or went to work for an equity firm and learned all about that part of, of the business. And, and so I was pretty convinced at that time that life and investing was all about picking stocks and picking bonds. <laughs> then I go to an endowment and realize, geez, that has very little to do with it. In fact, if you look at, at the four steps, right? Asset allocation, um, manager selection, portfolio construction, how much you give to each manager, and then security selection. 
security selection is only about 15, 1.5% of the returns. 85% comes from the first three from asset allocation, manager selection, portfolio construction. And so I, I learned it, it, it doesn't matter whether you own Ford or GM, should you own US equities at all relative to international equities or emerging market equities or fixed income or commodities. Those are the decisions that really drive returns. And so this traditional world um, led me to this idea that if you think about investing, there's only four ways to make money. That's pretty simple business. Right? I said, it's, there's four assets, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. There's only four ways to make money. If you, all of them require you to take a risk. If you take no risk, you make no return, right? You sit in cash, you get the risk-free rate, hence the name. And unfortunately, then inflation chews up all your returns. You actually lose money every day, uh, which we'll come back to, I'm sure, when we're talking about Michael Saylor and, and Bitcoin. But cash is trash over the long term. In the short term, it can be very good, right? It's a very good place to hide when things are overvalued. Uh, and it is an asset uh, that you should think about. But but over the long term, it's just a bad place to be. So you have to take one of four risks. First risk you can take is credit risk. You can buy a bond. And think about bonds, you don't get paid very much because it's not a lot of risk, right? It's a contractual claim. If you don't get paid, you can sue. And so you get paid 2% above risk-free. The long-term risk-free average is four. Today, it's closer to one. And you get 2% above that for bonds. So long-term, you make six. Right now, it's three. In fact, I met this guy pouring money into bonds a couple of years ago. And I was like, why are you putting so much money in bonds? He says, my clients need to make 7%. I said, but you're going to make two. He said, what do you mean? Last 10 years, I made seven. I'm like, yeah, because 10 years ago, the yield was seven. And 20 years ago, it was 11. And 30 years ago, it was 17. Today, the yield is two. And we know one thing about 10-year bonds. Whatever the yield is on the 10-year bond, on the day you buy it, that's what you make. And so credit risk... Fine, you can take you know low grade credit or private credit, and maybe you can eke out another you know one or two hundred basis points. But bottom line is you're not going to make a lot. So the second risk you can take is equity risk. Equity is a contingent claim, meaning you only get paid if the bondholders get all their money back. That's how I struggle with Tesla. Like they couldn't pay back all their debt, so how does the equity have any value? I'm like not mm -hmm. quite sure how that works. But it's cult stock and it goes up. Marketing but, um, is uh, is a big part. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, equity is really interesting. You get paid 7% above risk-free long-term. Now, not every year, that's on average. And some years you make less, some years you make more, but on average, you make about you know 10.5% compounded over you know centuries. And it's a pretty good deal, but, but there's risk because equities, you know, companies can fail. Uh, well, they used to be able to fail pre-QE. Now we don't let companies fail, which is a problem. Uh, it's like the participation trophy world in which we live. Uh, third risk you can take is illiquidity risk. Right? You can invest in private investments, illiquid investments, private equity, private real estate, private energy, private debt. And you make 500 basis points more than the public market. So I can do private equity instead of public equity, and I can make 12 uh, instead of seven above risk-free. That's pretty cool. So and last risk you can use is leverage, which is just a tool. And it works great when it works and it can kill you when it doesn't. And we're seeing that a little bit in the crypto space today. People use too much leverage uh, in January, February. And now they're getting unwound, uh, which is sad, but good long-term because it cleanses the system. So you think about those four risks. One of the things I, I realize is the best risk reward of those is the illiquidity premium. And so if you look at the best investors in the world, whether it's Yale, you know, God rest David, God rest David's soul just passed away, David Swenson. Um, 
or you know the great pension funds or the great you know private wealth managers they have a big weight in in venture capital private equity private energy private debt and they're taking advantage of that illiquidity premium say taking advantage of time arbitrage you know individuals all of us right everyone listening to this or you know, you and I we have a finite life as much as we're trying to you know work on biotech so it's not it's finite and therefore, we need our capital at some point to spend, to send kids to college, to you know, live in retirement. Um, and some of it maybe is multi-generational, but bottom line is we're going to spend our money. But endowments, foundations, multi-generational pensions, you know, sovereign wealth, live forever. And so they can time arbitrage, meaning they can get paid for that illiquidity that uh, the people like us who, who need the money to be liquid uh, are willing to pay for. So... I've always believed that that overweighting those illiquid assets made made sense, and so that's a long, 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 long winded way of saying that I, I had this epiphany uh, after the experience at, at Notre Dame when I was investing in in the the next innovation wave around 2010 around the mobile net that there was this cycle, and it's it's interesting if you go back all the way to 1954, right? The mainframe was invented. And you had a period of time where if you invested in companies like Deck and Wang and IBM, some funny names, you made a lot of money. And governments had computers and now big businesses could finally have computers. And then 14 years later, they invented the microchip. And if you invested in companies like Fairchild Semiconductor or Intel or AMD, you made a bunch of money. And now small businesses could actually have workstations from Sun or you know things like that. And then 14 years later, there was another innovation. And I don't know why it's always 14 years. I haven't figured that part out. Um, but I grew up in Seattle. I would, I would say most of my friends don't work. I was too stupid to go to work for that company called Microsoft. They did. So they don't have to work anymore. And I always defend myself saying, if you've ever seen the picture of the original Microsoft 11, you cut me some slack because they looked a little rough. Now we all looked rough in the 70s. I can't believe we wore those clothes, but they looked rougher than most. Look, look, you know, Google that picture tonight, the, the original Microsoft 11. Now they're all very successful and very wealthy and, and awesome, but- There's probably a 2011 picture of uh, Bitcoiners that, that- There is, In 30 yes. years, we'll look back. I'll tell and, you what, you know, that, that, that's a very good point. And to, and to that point, you know, we had the Bitcoin 2021 conference down in Miami a couple weeks ago, 12,000 people. 12,000 people. And the Winklevi twins were there. And they said, when we spoke at this in 2013, there were 130 people. And now we're speaking to 12,000. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, you know, 82 personal computers, Steve Ballmer's mom famously quipped, honey, why would you work for that company? No one would ever want a computer in their house. Right? He has 18 billion reasons he was right, mom was wrong. Uh, 14 years later, 1996, we had this thing called the internet, right? Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric. What is internet? What is that at symbol? It's a pretty big deal. Paul Krugman said it'd never be more important than a toaster. He kind of says the same thing about Bitcoin now. And he's wrong about the internet. He's wrong about Bitcoin, um, <laughs> as usual. And a whole bunch of people in that old guard club uh, that, that you know don't understand how technology evolves. And I don't understand why they fight it. Because technology, once it starts to evolve, you can't put it back. You know, in 2005, Google, again, pretty smart company, bought Android. And everybody said, oh, what are you doing? What do you know about operating systems for, for phones? And, you know, no one's ever going to want a personal a mobile phone. And I remember being back in Seattle at Craig McCaw's house for a venture capital event. 
And I asked his family office guy, you know, do you think the mobile net, which is 2010 phenomenon, is going to be as big as the internet? He's like, Mark, are you kidding me? Ask me if they want a computer. Like, yeah, whatever. Ask them if they want a phone. They say, well, I already have two. So why would I want another one? Yeah, the mobile net's pretty big. And the mobile net is bigger than the internet. And so Google today, Android has 80, 80% market share of mobile telephone operating systems. And so now 2024, still a few years from now, is the trust net. And that is where blockchain will become the operating system for everything, for the internet of value, for the internet of everything. It will all run on blockchain as the operating system, the same way we ran on COBOL and Fortran for mainframes. And then Sun Spark stations ran on a different operating system. Personal computers ran on DOS and Windows. And the internet runs on TCP IP. And mobile phones run on iOS and Android. We're going to run on blockchain. And once you have that aha moment that this is technology and that it's an inevitable evolution of technology, and I wrote about this. You know, if you go to our website, morgancreekcap.com, you can go back to 2018 and, and read about my Eureka moment, literally in Eureka, California, which I could not make that up. I was behind the wheel of a RV with my family, and it hit me that. This is just infrastructure. This is literally a digital gold rush. This is, you know, the richest man in California was not a gold miner. It was the man who owned the store, who bought up every pot and pan and, and uh, egg and, and, you know, side of bacon and uh, sold it to the miners on their way to, to the claim. And he literally would run down California Avenue yelling, there's gold in the American river. And uh, he became the first millionaire. So you know, this is a digital gold rush. And as I said, it, we'll look back from in, in years and we'll say, how did we miss it? How did we not embrace it? And it's because technology is scary. And worse than that, the incumbents will tell you how stupid it is and how dangerous it is. And that's, I call it the curse of incumbency. And it's in their interest to do that, right? I mean, horse and buggy manufacturers literally handed out pamphlets around New York City decrying the danger of getting in a horseless carriage. And that, um, a lot of good stuff there. And I, I was going to ask what your aha moment was. You just kind of laid it out. Uh, for me personally, that was kind of the same thing. It's, okay, we can look at this asset, this currency, which I think is probably a bad way to look at it because quite frankly, in, in the developed world, we're not looking for another way to pay somebody. We've got 10 or 15 ways to do that. I mean, it's almost yeah. as many as, you know, texting apps, which one do you want to, it creates confusion. But if you look at it from the standpoint of an evolution of the internet, there's so much untapped potential, regardless of what's happening, yeah. you know, on exchange. I mean, the, the thing that, that, people, I guess they struggle with, and I don't know why they struggle with it. And maybe it's, it's easy on the other side and getting to that, you know, look, I started as skeptical as anybody else. As I said, I, I got exposed in 2013, you know, good, good friend of mine, Dan Moorhead, uh, brought me to San Francisco, said, look, I'm shutting down my hedge fund, I'm starting this company called Pantera. I'm gonna spend the rest of my career focused on Bitcoin and blockchain. And I joke, although it's not a joke, I, you know, I wasn't running drugs on Silk Road not a cryptography student, didn't know what Bitcoin was. 
And so I made the first of my many bad decisions in this space. Uh, as soon as he said, picks and shovels, I'm like, I'm in, right? And that first fund of his, you know, was only a 15, one, $5 million fund, but it's up you know, 13X mm -hmm. and uh, invested in a bunch of exchanges and, and infrastructure companies. But I should have put the money in the Bitcoin fund because it's up 600X. And the funny thing about that is I didn't get it because I was skeptical, right? I, to your point, I, I said, well, we don't need new money. We don't need new payment rails. But, but the reality is we, we do and we will and mm -hmm. everything will migrate to blockchain. And Rod Collins really helped me on this. He's a futurist and he wrote the book, Wiki Management, talked about why Wikipedia is better than an encyclopedia and right. collective intelligence is, is really an amazing thing. And, and he describes a world, which I think is so cool. He says, you'll, you'll be sitting in the back of your autonomous vehicle, right? We won't drive, we'll, we'll be driven. And it'll pull into the charging station. It won't take two hours to charge. It'll quick charge immediately. You will not get out of the back seat and walk up to the machine and put your plastic card in the machine. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen, right? The car will pay the machine with crypto. And then you'll get into traffic and you'll decide you wanna go in the fast lane. You won't have a picture taken of your license plate and have it come in the mail and you write a check for $4.17. The car will pay the lane to go fast. And then I joke, and then hopefully I, as a Waze Gold customer, will get sent on the fast route and the rest of y'all can go on the slow route. That actually won't exist. Well, maybe, <laughs> ah, maybe it will. It might. Evolution, eh? I mean, Evolution. you never know. That right there is a good point. I was recently reading just a payment system book and there's a section in there where they describe the current banking system, the banking infrastructure and rails. And there's nothing new in there, but it described this open network. It basically, if you replace a couple of words, you would have been talking about the Bitcoin network. Yet traditional finance says, hey, can't do it, scary, bad thing because- Oh, come on. Look, yeah. the traditional fans don't, okay. Consider the source, right? I have a hashtag yeah. for it. Consider the source. So my grandfather-in-law left a safe job with the train company to go work for American Airlines. His parents were horrified. Everybody mm -hmm. tried to talk him out of it, right? And the train manufacturers handed out pamphlets saying, if you get on an airplane, your body will cave in on itself because you'll be going too fast. No. Okay. So incumbents don't want you to evolve, right? They, they want to keep their monopoly. And look, mm -hmm. the banks have had a good run. The bank's about a 700, actually 800 year run that, uh, look, in the old days, if I wanted to lend you money, I lent you some money and I wrote down in my book how much you owed me. And you had to trust me that I wrote down the right amount, right? Single entry accounting. So and then you get the a DGs, key to access, yeah. you know, yes. the, the, the banking will always exist. The evolution of banking has changed time and time again. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And the Medici's kind of kind of started the, the current form in the 1300s, where they said, well, look, Mark's going to lend Kane some money, and he's going to write it down. And we're both going to write it down. But what if I write down 200, and you write down 100? Well, that's a problem. So now we, the Medici's, the benevolent mm -hmm. bankers, will do this. Here, you both have an account with us, and we'll charge you a little fee to be the trust in the middle, we'll be the trusted third party and we'll verify which number is right. 
And so that has lasted for 800 years and it's been great. And the banking cabal has, has been awesome. And, and look, you know, everything about our economy and everything about our, our existence revolves around the banking cabal. And it, it goes back to Holland in the 1600s when the Rothschilds created the first central bank. In fact, the word dollar comes from Holland, right? The dollar. And uh, we have borrowed it in the 1700s. And what's crazy about it, from 1776 to 1913, a dollar was worth a dollar, right? There was no inflation. There, there was no uh, systematic ev erosion of the value of your currency. And starting in 1913, the Fed was created by guess what? Bankers by John mm -hmm. D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller's father-in-law, Amory Aldridge. And it was designed to steal surreptitiously and secretly, quietly, uh, your wealth, you know, the middle class's wealth, and give it to the elites. And, and that's been going on for a century. And, and it's systematic. And, and they've sold this narrative, the bankers have sold this narrative that inflation is good for you. On what planet is stealing my money good for me? <laughs> you know, if, if I had a dollar yesterday and I left it in the bank and today I still have a dollar, but that gallon of gas, instead of costing 31 cents when I grew up to $4.31, it's the same gallon of gas. It does the exact same thing. In fact, it's less good because now it has ethanol in it, but it's not better. It's the same but the dollar is less good because it's been devalued. And that gets reversed with cryptocurrency. And, and again, that aha moment that inflation isn't something we should aspire to, it isn't something that's good, that a deflationary currency, a fixed supply currency, a currency that can't be increased by fiat is a really good thing. And and this goes to the history of money. And I, I, I participated in this really cool project. It's called Coins. It's a documentary, 12-part documentary on kind of the history of money and the history of Bitcoin. And uh, it's funny, we, did, we filmed the first episode in the San Francisco Mint, which has been decommissioned because there's not enough demand for currency anymore because we don't have coins, right? Only 8% of money is actually physical coins and, and currency. 92% uh, of it's electronic, ones and zeros. But- the history of money is pretty interesting. In the old days, right? You had chickens, I had cows, we'd bring them to market, we would trade. And then we realized that's kind of inconvenient to truck the animals. So how about we mint some tokens, some coins, and I'll have cows on mine, you have chickens on yours, and we'll exchange those. Well, coins. that was the thing too, is if if I needed one cow and you didn't need any chickens, how were we gonna trade? And exactly. so you had to have that unit in the middle. Um, yeah. And, and what's crazy is then once you get a bag full, it's kind of hard to carry around and then you're you know, subject to being robbed. And so you left it at the bank and the bank said, yes, we'll safe keep it. And we'll give you these paper notes as IOUs. Because by the time when you give the bank your money, it's not your money anymore. It's the bank's right. money. And you have an IOU and that IOU is usually pretty good, but it's still not your money. And so paper currencies were created. And, and now we live in a world where they used to be backed by gold or silver, right? Pound sterling, when it first came out 380 years ago, got you a pound of sterling silver, hence the name. Today it takes 174 pounds of sterling silver to get a pound note. So it's really not a good thing. And I, I think what, what is interesting is uh, this, this idea that a sound money, hard money, uh, which historically has been gold, right? Gold, for 5,000 years, 
You think about that, 5,000 years, one ounce has bought a fine person suit, whether it's a suit of armor, a zoot suit in the 20s, or a fine man suit on Savo Road today, one ounce buys a fine man suit. And it's so, the only currency throughout the history of man that has lasted as a currency. All the others right. have failed. Yeah. All those have come and gone because empires fail eventually because they overspend and then they devalue their currency, either through seniorage, the clipping of coins like the denarius mm -hmm. in Roman times, or you know, just downright taxation and theft. Control um, P. Yeah. And and now control P is is the is the worst, right? I mean, think about this stat. 39% of all the dollars ever to exist in the history of the Republic were created in the last 12 months. It took us a hundred years to get the first $10 trillion. And we just created 10 trillion in two. I mean, it's unfathomable how, how much devaluation has gone on. And so when you look at the price of, of digital assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's not so much that they're getting better, it's that the cross, right, the dollar is getting worse. And, and it's like, if you look at stock market, right? Stock market looks like it's going up, right? Oh, it's making new all-time highs. Well, in nominal terms, but that's because you're, deva you're, you're, you're um, valuing it in a devaluing currency, the dollar. If I value the S&P in not dollars, but in units of central bank assets, it's dead flat since 2008, since the start of the QE era. If I denominate it in gold, right, real money, right, gold is the only money. Everything else is currency. Gold is money, and now Bitcoin is digital gold, but, but gold exists in the absence of a liability. Every other currency has a liability associated with just government debt. And gold, therefore, has been real money. And there are lots of reasons why it happened because of scarcity and, and certain um, elemental reasons. There are only six elements that actually could uh, be stable enough and durable enough. Uh, and really, gold was the, the best of those because it was the most scarce. Right? Platinum works too. It has all the same elements. There's just too much supply. Yeah. Right? You know, the Russians can go mine too much of it and devalue it. So gold has been great because the stock to flow ratio, meaning the amount of gold that's mined every year roughly equals that which is lost or stolen. So the current stock doesn't change that much, right? The flow isn't that much. So that stock to flow ratio is very high. And the only asset that has a higher stock to flow ratio now is Bitcoin uh, because of the last halving. Um, but all this comes back to, if you can increase something out of thin air by fiat, then its value can be destroyed at a whim. And that is a system that penalizes savers, rewards spenders and borrowers. And guess what? He who has the gold makes the rules. The people who are the biggest spenders and borrowers, governments are the ones that have decided that's how we're gonna do things. And that's why fiat currencies will be systematically destroyed and why you need to have a portion of your wealth opted out of that system into sound money. And that's something we we'll definitely want to talk about that allocation. There were a lot of good things that you covered. Um, 
a couple I'll, I'll throw out there. And early on, we're talking about asset classes, only being four asset classes. What I think a lot of people misunderstand from a, a client or, or traditional wealth management client or prospect is everything is risk. It's a decision. Every choice mm-hmm. is risk. It's just what's your capacity for risk? What's your tolerance for risk? Mm-hmm. Where is that line? And so we get just human nature. We want to know about the Microsoft, the Googles and all the different companies, because we think that return is greater than just the pure asset class. And in periods it could be, but reality yep. is our time preference is going to dictate or, you know, fear is going to dictate when we buy or sell or need to get out. And it may not be a better time. So if you just simply look at the four asset classes and here we're adding a digital asset class because the yep. world is becoming more digital, it makes it all easier. Instead of worrying about all the different stocks, you just, do I want to own stocks? What percent do I want to own bonds? What percent do I want to own commodities? What percent? So on and so forth. Yep. And now we have this tool with cryptocurrencies to own a digital asset. And, and so that's one of the things I wanted to talk about your perspective on adding a new asset class and from being in the endowment space and focus on alternatives. Well, you here's the have interesting thing. I, I agree with everything you said, except that last little part, which I actually don't view these as new assets. I think they are digital representations of the big four. So Good you know, point. Crypt- Good point. cryptocurrencies right, are digital currencies. And Bitcoin is a digital commodity, right? It's digital gold. Ultimately, we will have digital stocks and digital bonds, and we'll just have everything digital. Now, the reason Bitcoin and and Ethereum as well, but Bitcoin in particular, the reason it's so valuable in a portfolio is because of Harry Markowitz, right? I have a t-shirt actually says Markowitz was right. And uh, I'm a Chicago guy. I went to University of Chicago and studied, you know, under Harry and others. And what he won the Nobel Prize for is this this construct, which seemed crazy to people. I mean, look, I grew up in a time when it was deemed fiduciarily irresponsible to own equities. Just let that sink in for a second. Right. Too in risky, the late seventies. Right? Yeah, too risky. In the late seventies, cover story of Time magazine, the death of equities, in the article, quote, no self-respecting fiduciary should ever own equities again. And if you think about that time, it was when there was major volatility. 60s oh, absolutely. And, and, 70s. and it was actually yep. turned out three years later, one of the best times ever to right. buy stocks. Mm-hmm. When, you know, Warren Buffett. Uh, you know, famously, Buffett was a big buyer of stocks. And then famously in 2000, quipped, you know, valuations are stupid uh, when everybody was piling in. So nobody wanted to own them in 79 and 82. Um, but that's the na- human nature, right? Human beings right. do two things really, really well. We buy what we wish we would have bought. So we chase the hot dot and then we sell what we're about to need. So, but Markowitz came along and said, well, wait, if, if I have the riskiest asset there is, cash, well, what do you mean the riskiest asset? It's riskless. Well, no, it's riskless in the sense that you can't lose it, but every day you it are grows. going to lose to inflation. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have your wealth stolen. So if I start with that you know, risk-free asset, quote unquote, and I add bonds, the risk of my portfolio actually goes down. 
because cash and bonds are uncorrelated. Um, so then if I add equities, the risk of my portfolio goes down. Like, no, that no, it goes up. No, it goes down. And he showed mathematically. Now, the cool part is um, if you think about volatility as a measure of risk, it's a horrible. Volatility we should seek. In fact, I have a t-shirt. People I, will see it, but it says yeah. embrace volatility, right? And I love vol volatility personally. No, volatility is when, awesome. Yeah. It's the only way you make money. And I think when people understand what volatility is and how it works, their opinion of risk changes and their construction of the portfolio exactly. changes. What you fear is downside volatility, mm -hmm. what's called semi-variance. And there's, there was a, a, a rumor that Markowitz said once that, you know, I would have used semi-variance for, you know, CAPM, capital asset pricing model, but, you know, the math would have been too hard and I wouldn't have won the Nobel Prize. So I actually got to have dinner with Dr. Markowitz once and I said, you know, Dr. Markowitz, is it true that you said this? So of course, I wanted a damn million dollars. So of course I use volatility because it's way easier to understand. But no, why would you penalize something for positive deviation from the mean? You should look for that, right? You should try to find mm -hmm. things that have a positive deviation from the mean. So long story short is every time you add an uncorrelated asset to your portfolio, you get a better portfolio. That's portfolio theory. And that's why venture capital and real estate and commodities and all these other assets increase the efficiency of a portfolio and make the portfolio better because they decrease your volatility, particularly your downside volatility, and they increase your compounding. Uh, now, I've been around a long time. I got the white hair to prove it. And I've seen every innovation that promised low correlation, right? Stocks and bonds, 60% correlated. International stocks, 70% correlated. Hedge funds, 50% correlated. You know, commodities, sometimes 70% correlated. And all these things, they, they definitely are less correlated than one, right? Uh, although in crisis, they all go to one. But, but bottom mm -hmm. line is they, they do add value in a Markowitz framework. But the most uncorrelated asset I have ever seen in my career, and again, I'm doing this you know, almost 40 years, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is 0.0, .0 correlated to bonds and 0 0.15 correlated to stocks. Well, why? Well, really simple. Stocks and bonds derive their value from GDP growth, interest rates, corporate profits, right? So they're going to be pretty correlated. They're not going to be perfectly correlated, but they're going to be pretty correlated. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin derive their value from the technology, regulation, millennial adoption. This is really interesting. Digital natives really believe and understand digital assets. Like if you ask anyone over 35, who's your broker? I don't know, UBS, Merrill Lynch, whoever, whatever. How much gold do you have? I don't know, three, 4%. How much Bitcoin do you have? Oh, are you kidding me? Zero. It's a Ponzi it. scheme. No, nothing. Yeah. Don't even talk about it. Okay. Ask anyone under 35. Who's your broker? What's don't a broker? have one. You mean, you mean that Robinhood? I got a Robinhood account. Okay. How much gold do you have? Oh, are you kidding me? Boomer rocks? Zero. Yuck. How much Bitcoin do you have? I don't want to talk about it. Why not? Because it's a really big percentage of my portfolio. So there is a digital divide. And the, the millennial adoption is driving. And look, there's 37 trillion, 
with a T, trillion. Remember, a trillion is a dollar every second for 31,710 years. It's a big number. 37 of those babies are coming from the boomer generation, my generation, to the millennial generation. And they aren't going to go into gold and traditional assets. Some, some will go into traditional assets, some will go into private assets, but bottom line is a whole bunch of it is gonna go into digital assets. And here's the thing, five years ago. Now, I'm not gonna say in 2009, you could invest in Bitcoin because it was a science experiment, you know, shouldn't even survive, but it did because it really is amazing innovation. Even in 2013, it was pretty tough, but five years ago, Right in you know 2016, you easily could have put one percent of your portfolio into Bitcoin, and instead of making seven point two percent in a sixty forty portfolio, you would have made nine point two. It's pretty good. Now here's the cool part: had it gone to zero, so you took half percent from bonds, half percent from stocks, put one percent Bitcoin, you would have made nine point two instead of seven point two. Had it gone to zero which at the time was a non-zero probability. I would say it was still not going to happen, but, but some people thought it could happen. I think there's no chance it goes to zero. But you would have made seven. That's a 10 to one upside downside return. You take that the all most day. Asymmetric, it's the most asymmetric, uncorrelated asset. And here's the thing. Today, the value of the Bitcoin network, which is the most powerful computing network on the planet, Right? It's just like Amazon is a network, Facebook is a network, Apple's a network. They're not companies the way we think about companies. And what does Amazon make? Amazon doesn't make anything. They're a search so engine that, that matches and sells, matches buyers and sellers, and they take a cut. That's a great so, point. And I think that's one that is overlooked. The comp because everything is digital. So we in the 30s, we had this physical goal because the world was mostly yeah. physical. And then they found out, hey, we need a better way to transport money. So they create IOUs, dollars, layer two. Yeah. Today, we're in a mostly digital world. Neither of those cur currencies work well in that digital world. So you need this Amen. new base layer asset, Bitcoin. You could even use Ethereum to transport layer two monies with everything else on top of it. And then three, but our companies today are largely digital. And they're digital, like you said, they have I mean, their they, own they networks. exist in yeah. the ether. Yep. I mean, again, what does Amazon so these, make? So cryptocurrencies really are just digital projects that will become the next Google's, Amazon's, whatever that exactly. you know, 25 years ago, nobody thought about. Yeah. Bitcoin is the most powerful computing network on the planet. It is 1,500 times more powerful than the CERN supercomputer. Yep. It's a pretty big deal. It's the most safe and secure computing network the world has ever seen. And how many times listeners had to change their Visa or MasterCard number because of fraud? Yep. Plenty, right? Well, Probably so that's a good- to me every other year. Because you brought those up, that's a good, good point. So back to that payments uh, book I was talking about and it basically explaining the Bitcoin network. Well, it walks through when Bank of America created Visa in the 50s. And there was a competing group in California who were like, yeah, we don't want to use your network. We want to use ours, which ultimately became MasterCard and spun that out. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at it. I was like, this is just DeFi. Exactly. Know? Oh, absolutely. Except you had, you know, cardboard cards instead of, you know, a wallet. On APIs your and links. to Yeah. You know. And, but it's exactly the same. And look, there's nothing new in this world. Correct. It's just an evolution of computing power that makes these networks possible. So today, 
the big five networks, right? Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, roughly have a trillion to a couple trillion dollars of, of value, right? Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, roughly a trillion dollars of value. So they're all roughly clustered in that area. Okay, that's been pretty good. So people made a lot of money if they invested early, it's gone to a trillion dollars from zero, from a science experiment in 2008, nine to a trillion dollars, pretty good. If we think about the next step, which is gold equivalents. If it's digital gold, why won't it have the same market cap as yep. gold? Now the market cap of gold, 10 trillion. 10 trillion. I'm gonna argue only about half of that is monetary gold, you know, mm -hmm. jewelry and, and chalices and stuff yep. that doesn't really count. But the monetary value, bricks and bars and, and uh, coins, about 5 trillion. So that's a 5X from here, right? So that's a pretty good upside. But what, if this becomes the monetary base layer, as you described, right? The, the, the monetary protocol for the global monetary system, which is 86 trillion, okay? So you got a, you know, 86X upside. Maybe you should own just a little. It, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto had a great line in, in, the, um, in the emails around the white paper saying, you know, you should probably just get some in case it, it catches on. Because if everybody starts believing, it, 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 may, it may develop into something, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and that's true in the sense that all innovation, right, begins as broken precedent. Bezos with Amazon. Yeah. I mean, when he first drove across country from, funny story, so I grew, grew up in Seattle. So he drove from New York to Seattle, literally didn't have a place to stay, crashed on a friend of mine's couch. And he was a financial advisor for Smith Barney and said, hey, can I talk to some of your clients? And uh, I loved his pitch was, you know, you're probably going to lose everything, but give me $50,000 because I have this idea to start this, this digital bookstore or electronic bookstore. And I'm like, Jeff, that's not a good sales pitch, right? You're probably going to lose everything. But a few people gave him $50,000, including my friend, that 50 grand turned into $300 million wow. because of innovation as an asset class. I mean, he really redefined the way. Oh, and the volatility is amazing. Most people don't realize this, that Amazon stock, okay, it's been a public stock for 24 years and uh, went public not, not too long after he raised that initial money. Uh, it's been public stock for 24 years. The, it's had a double digit drawdown every year including this year, the average drawdown is 31%. The average. So five times more than 50% and twice more than 90%. So I say, when was the, you know, how many people bought 24 years ago and held to today? There's four, Jeff, his mom, his dad, and his ex-wife. That's it, right? Nobody else because they couldn't handle that volatility. And when was the right time to sell Amazon? Never, not ever. And same thing's true with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's really volatile, but when's been the right time to sell? Never. And I was on, I was on CNBC uh, a couple of years ago and it had fallen from like 10,000 to 8,000 that day, right? And I came on and, and you know, Melissa Lee was the host and they had the traders on and they're like, oh, you know, what do you think? I'm like, buy it. I'm like, what? What do you mean? It just, it just went down from 10,000. Like, buy it, buy it today. Buy it tomorrow, 
buy it next week, buy it the week after. Don't buy it all at once, right? Dollar cost average. But and it's defining that percentage within your yeah. portfolio that exactly. is important. Yeah, that, yeah, a, and that asset allocation and just buy into that. Look, everyone needs to have 1% to 3%, full mm-hmm. stop. Everyone needs to have 1% to 3% as that opt-out insurance, that asymmetric upside. You don't need 10, 20, 30. No, the younger you are, the more you should have. You know, I can make an argument for really big numbers, but not 50, 60, 70%, but I, I can make arguments for 10, 20, even 30% if people have a long time horizon. Uh, like, look, I, I have this thing. I think young people, right, it should be against the law to own bonds in their 401k, right? If you can't touch the money for 50 years, you should not be allowed to own you know, bonds. One, you one should have to own venture capital. You should have to own real estate and commodities and, and Bitcoin and crypto and, and long duration, back to your point on duration. We, we need to embrace that long-term volatility because that's what creates wealth. And ultimately, in a portfolio, right, you're advising clients and, and what you want to tell them is, I, I know you do tell them, what you are going to tell them is that you, know, you need to build a portfolio with assets that work together. You need assets that have asymmetric upside, right? If, if you want to minimize volatility, it's easy. Put all your money in cash. Mm-hmm. But then what'll happen is every day you'll lose wealth, wealth decline because you'll be stolen by this evil specter inflation. And so, okay, I'm going to take some risk. Well, how much risk do you want to take? Well, it depends how you define risk. If you're defining risk the wrong way, by volatility of price, because price, like I say, I tweet this all the time, hashtag price is a liar. The price of something is not the value. Correct. The value is very, very different. The price is simply what two people decide to exchange a small amount of something. I use Microsoft all the time. If you look at the NASDAQ quoted price right now, whatever it is, $100, I don't even know what the price of Microsoft is. But that is literally the price for the last person that sold 100 shares to someone else. If you have a million shares, that is not the price. If you have 10 million shares, that is not the price. You will get a much lower price if you try to sell mm-hmm. 10 million shares of Microsoft than if you try to sell 100 shares. And the, so, there's a couple of things there. There's misconceptions. Is one, the average person looks at their portfolio um, and they see some assets down, some assets up, and they're like, oh, let's get rid of the ones down. But proper portfolio construction, you don't want them all going up because when one turns, they're all going to go down. It, if they're such an important point, the so most important thing to do offsets. is rebalance. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, and David Swanson talks about this in, in his book, and, and uh, again, it's not, ro- not rocket science that rebalancing back to a strategic target is intelligent. That's risk management. Uh, Speculating is moving away from a target. And it's not to say that speculating from time to time is is evil, right? Speculating is not evil in and of itself. It's human instinct. It's human instinct for one. And two, it, it, it is a way to make money. Right. But the difference is speculating, you're moving away. So let's say you have a 10% target to mm-hmm. equities and you decide, I want to be 15% because I think stocks are cheap. Okay, That's a speculation. Now, mm-hmm. if you're right, 
if stocks are cheap and they move back to fair value, that's a good speculation and you make money. And that is a good way to invest, right? To be a value investor, to buy things when right. they are cheap uh, and sell them when they're expensive. So totally fine. A well, better good, way is to good, constantly rebalance to your point. Good speculators can build wealth over time, but there's not a lot of them. Most speculators destroy wealth. Oh, absolutely. Look, it's there are four types of market participants. There are investors, right, who have a disciplined plan. They continually rebalance. They sell what's working and they buy what, what isn't. And they constantly rotate into value and, and move away from overvaluation. And, and they have a long time horizon and they do time arbitrage and they're diversified. And, and those are investors. Then there are traders, right? And traders have a shorter duration and they're, they're, they're buying and selling and they're trying to, you know, scalp uh, mispricings relative to value. And, and, you know, if you are diligent and if you are um, prudent and disciplined, trading can actually work. Now, speculating is different because speculating is, is your betting, mm -hmm. literally betting. Now it's, it's not as bad as gambling. The fourth type are gamblers. Speculators actually buy something because it's moving, right? They, they see something moving and, and they, they speculate that it will continue, the, the trend will continue. And again, that can work, but to your point, there aren't very many people who are very good at it because they overstay their welcome. The problem is gambling is bad. Gambling is when you buy something that someone else is buying because of FOMO, fear of missing out. That's what's going on with the whole Reddit thing and the GameStop of and financial you know, the meme stocks. And mm -hmm. you know, look, gambling, there are gamblers who make money. They're the ones that go into the casino, they get lucky early and they leave. That's the only way you win in gambling. If you stay and keep gambling, you will lose because the odds are stacked against you. It's mathematical certainty that if you gamble a lot, you will lose. Mm -hmm. And the same thing in speculating and gambling in, in the capital markets. It's not, look, I, I, I tell a story, and I shouldn't tell it, but you know, I have a, a family member, I won't name names, but I have a family member who got into day trading back in 2000. And the curse was his first trade. He made more than his previous year's salary. So he thought he was good at this. He then lost 95% of his net worth because he stayed in the game and the game is rigged against you. Mm. And so the best way to win is, is like, it's like war games, right? The best way to win is not to play the game. So let's not gamble or speculate. Let's invest. Let's buy things that are on sale. Let's sell things that are expensive. Let's have a disciplined approach. Let's have a strategic target for every asset. Let's include diversifying assets to take advantage of of uh, low correlation. Let's seek volatile assets that are uncorrelated with one another in a portfolio approach using a financial advisor that helps us avoid, I, I hate to say it this way, but, but protects us from ourselves. Correct. Human yeah. beings are herd animals. We love the comfort of the herd. The problem is you don't make any money that way. Mm -hmm. It's already in the price. Look, my pin tweet, the greatest wealth is created by investing in something that you believe in before others even understand it. You'll be mocked and ridiculed, but it'll be worth it. They'll all join you later. 
it's really hard to be mocked and ridiculed. We don't like it. We're uncomfortable. And most of us give up. And it's really hard not to do what everyone else is doing. Right? It's really hard not to buy Dogecoin. <laughs> Why would anyone buy Dogecoin? I mean, literally, it's a fork of a fork with no developers, no nothing. It's, I, I said it on TV when it was, I don't know, 72 cents or whatever. It's everything that's wrong with the markets today. We gave people free money, right? We locked people in their apartments. We said, you can't go to sporting events. You can't gamble and can't go to Vegas. So, hey, here's some free money. Why don't you gamble on stocks? Horrible, horrible outcome. And now we have a whole legion of people who think this is a video game and we've mm -hmm. gamified investing. And what we need to do is go back to first principles and invest and have discipline and seek things that are outside the comfort zone. Look, if you invest, I say this all the time, like if you invest and you feel really good about it, you're going to lose money. Mm -hmm. And if that's, you feel really, really good, yep. you're going you're gonna to lose a lot of money. If you invest and you feel a little sick to your stomach, you're going to make money. If you yep. feel really uncomfortable, you're going to probably make a lot of money. Now, it's hard to live your life uncomfortable, right? Which is why you get an advisor and let them be uncomfortable for you. Um, and have that discipline. I used to, when I was at the university, uh, I used to say it was my job to maximize the discomfort of the board. But I realized that doesn't work because if you maximize the discomfort, they get rid of you because you're an irritant. So you have mm -hmm. to optimize the discomfort. You have to keep people just uncomfortable enough that they do the right thing, you know, sell into uh, overvaluation and buy things when they're cheap and constantly rebalance and constantly seek innovation as an asset class and constantly seek a portfolio that has balance and isn't trying to you know, hit the ball out of the park every time. Um, again, if you're younger, have more risk. Just yeah. have a higher volatility, overall volatility in the portfolio. As you get a little older, you, you lower that a little bit. You don't wanna take no risk because risk is what gets you paid. And I, to your point, I love volatility, I love risk, but I wanna manage it. And I wanna be disciplined in how I approach it. And I wanna seek uncorrelated risks and seek risks where there's an asymmetric payout. Things like Bitcoin, things like, you know, Ethereum and, and things, you know, and, I, you know, I don't go too deep into the weeds of the technology, but the internet developed uh, from many, many protocols to five. We have five protocols that we use every day, TCP IP, which is the base layer. Then we have SMTP for email, HTTP for websites, FTP for files, and www. which ties everything together in World Wide Web. Going forward, right, in Web3, uh, we will have Bitcoin as the base layer. We'll have uh, Filecoin as the file mm -hmm. transfer protocol. Uh, we'll have probably Cosmos or Polkadot as the HTTP and the SMTP. And then we'll have Ethereum that is the www dot that ties everything together. And that protocol stack, the cool thing is in the web, all the wealth wasn't created at the protocol layer, right? Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet, not Al Gore, right? Tim Berners-Lee literally wrote the first web page uh, on TCP IP, 9,500 lines of code. And I used to say, you know, he's not a rich guy. Well, now he actually is because he's selling those 9,500 lines of code at Sotheby's in an NFT, which is really cool. So he's going to get paid for that, you know, invention of the internet. 
But he wasn't a rich guy because you couldn't own the protocol. Who got rich? Zuck. Because Zuck built an app that sat on top of the protocol layer and gave us a free product. By the way, if it's free, you're the product. And then he takes our data and he sells it and monetizes and gets really rich. Well, in the new world, you can actually own the protocols. You can actually own the base layer. You can actually own the second layer. You can actually own the transfer layer, Filecoin. And that's really cool because now the application developers will still make some money. And if you can own them, you can, you can get rich there too. But by owning the protocols themselves, you treat them like a venture capital investment. Like I don't trade Bitcoin. I buy it and I hold it or hodl it. And that I believe is like making a venture capital investment in the protocol layer of the internet of everything. Yep. And that's, and I know we're kind of bumping up on time, so we'll wrap it up, but that's the big thing. So there's nothing really different in what's happening, the technology, it's evolution of it. The difference is- Evolution of technology. And the way I think about it is think about an X, Y axis and think about a parabolic curve in the upper right quadrant, upper left quadrant, right? The, The Northwest quadrant. And the left side of that, which is parallel to the x-axis is web 1.0, right? That's Cisco and Microsoft. And the area between the the curve and the x-axis is the wealth created by Cisco and Intel and Microsoft. Pretty big deal, right? Then you got the knee of the curve where the curve starts to bend up. And that's web 2.0. And that's Alibaba and Amazon and, and more wealth was created. The area under the curve is bigger. Well, now we're going parabolic and we're going parallel to the y-axis, that's web three. The area under that curve, technically it's unlimited, but it's not really unlimited, but it's bigger than one and two. And so the wealth that's gonna be created in this innovation cycle is gonna be like nothing we've ever seen. And that's why you, you have to participate. You have to integrate it into your portfolio. Yeah, you don't have to put your whole portfolio in it, but you don't need to, because it's got an asymmetric, it's got that asymptotic payout. and. It's just math. That's my other hashtag, just yeah. math, right? People are bad at math, right? If I say what's two times two, everybody says four. If I say what's 17 times 23, I'll wait. That's actually we'll been be proven that. to be yes. the limit of human intelligence. The average person cannot do that in their head. They need a calculator. So if I say, how are you at nonlinear logarithmic regression? Not very good. But here's the thing. If I take 10 linear steps across the office and get to the other side of the office, if I take 10 exponential steps, I go around the world twice. Exponential math is amazing. It's the greatest superpower we as investors can harness. And digitization is bringing that into the palm of our hand. We're going to be able to own every asset in an exponential growth plane as the networks globalize. I mean, the thing that I still blows me, 40% of adults in the world don't have a bank account. I know, that's shocking to think about. Just think and about that. 40% yeah. don't have a bank account. Two-thirds of them have a mobile phone, okay? So we can deliver them now financial services. We can create financial inclusion in an exponential way through digital assets. That's part of what I think is different in the nothing's different narrative is the phone becomes your banker. Yes. And your financial advisor is not giving you access. He's becoming a coach yes. to help you make better portfolio risk decisions or wealth decisions. Yep. And also this is probably not the first time, but that profit margin that all this technology is kind of set in the entity and the corporate level now 
the individual can participate by owning this infrastructure and these networks where before it was the company that owns it, the five guys that run it make all the money and it doesn't get passed down. And we live in this world of inequality. Look, we have the highest wealth and income inequality in the history of mankind that is about to change. And, you know, the hashtag on, on the internet is, is Bitcoin fixes this. And uh, it does. And it, it is a democratizing innovation and it increases inclusion. It increases equality. It decreases the propensity of governments to steal our wealth through, through inflation. And it, it is an amazing innovation. And I would say you can judge the quality of an idea by the quality of its opponents. So the fact that you know, the head of the largest bank in the world calls it a fraud, probably has information content. The fact that you know, Warren Buffett calls it rat poison squared, probably has information content. The fact that Charlie Munger, his partner, one-ups him says, it's like trading newly harvested dead baby brains. What the heck, Charlie, yeah. seriously? Those Why do they say that? Because they are the incumbents. They're yeah. the financial services. Berkshire Hathaway is 46% financial services. They own a bunch of banks. And they don't like the fact- You're shrinking that profit margin. Exactly. And look, it is natural evolution. And everybody who is disrupted complains about it. But why? They don't want to lose their job. And, and you know they fear that the economy will be less well off. Well, here's the fact, right? We have more jobs in the world today than at any time in history. We've lost mm-hmm. more jobs probably than we've created in you know the first couple centuries, but we have more jobs today than any time in history. But that's the way it works, right? That's the way exponential math works. The world gets bigger, the problems get bigger, but the innovation creates new opportunities. And yes, people get displaced and people get harmed and, and it stinks, right? I mean, I see textile workers here in North Carolina and it's hard. But you know, when when the previous president came in and said, I'm gonna get your job back. No, you're not. And that's okay, actually. Skill now, what we need to do is retrain. We need to yeah. retrain. Yep. We need to promote, you know, community college and and trade. Edu- you know, trade education. Not everybody needs a four year degree. A lot of people could get a two year degree. A lot of people need to learn to trade. I <laughs> silly silly example, but our refrigerator is dying. We're trying to get a new refrigerator. It is impossible to get a qualified technician who I'm willing to pay a reasonable amount of money to come fix my refrigerator because you need a refrigerator. It turns out, and it's hard because there's aren't enough of them because people have said that's not valuable. Well, that's just as a mindset shift and a education shift. And the governments over time tend in this direction. All empires fail in the history of mankind, right? Every empire has failed. Every world reserve currency has shifted. People forget Portugal used to have the world reserve currency in 1400s. Portugal. How the heck did Portugal get the world reserve currency? Well, they had the tallest trees, therefore they had the tallest mast, they had the fastest ships. Then Spain takes them over, then France takes them over, then the Netherlands takes them over, then the UK got the steamship, then we got nuclear power. And now what's happening in the future is it's not gonna be about ships, it's gonna be about chips. Mm-hmm. And as the world goes digital, the people who are gonna win, that's why China spent all this money on AI and 5G. And look, we rock in America at social media. We're awesome. We're number one. But I think 5G and AI are more important. So activity is a little bit lower on the social media side of yeah, 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 most exactly. people's so, lives. Most people's lives. But what the future holds is unparalleled opportunity. 
and unparalleled people and people hear me talk all the time oh you're such a you're so negative you're such a pessimist i'm the most optimistic person you know all i believe in is innovation as an asset class do i believe that us equities are way overvalued absolutely do i think free money is a horrible model absolutely do i think the governments are lining their own pockets at the expense of the middle class and the poor absolutely do i think you know we can fix all of this yeah so that's hopeful. It's it's forward looking, and it means embrace innovation as an asset class. Help your portfolio by introducing assets that embrace this this movement to the digital age, and you'll be better off for it. And Mark, I, I appreciate your time today. It was an awesome conversation. I think just to summarize that last little bit, uh, what I heard was you're a bond guy who gets innovation and realizes that. The banking system always evolves from Portugal to where we are to now and where we might be 10 years from now. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I, I, uh, the only, the only, I, that's perfect summary. The only thing I would, uh, change is I'm, I'm a value guy. I believe in value. I, 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 I've always believed in value and it, and sometimes it's a curse, right? I mean, I've, I've mm -hmm. missed lots of big opportunities because I'm not a true believer early. And so this this transition into the digital age, where I've gone from being a you know financial advisor, so to speak, you know registered investment advisor and and a fund of funds guy to a venture capitalist who's investing in technology has been a real uh, real change for me. So I, you know even old dogs can learn new tricks. Um, maybe it's because you know I, I have a, I have a unique family. I have a 32 year old, a 30 year old, and a 10 year old, and. Uh, uh, it's, you know, we, we get the chance to be parents a second time and we're much better the second time. Not that we were bad the first time, we're just better the second time. Um, but he keeps me young. He keeps me focused. And uh, I'll share one funny story. So um, because my wife uh, stayed home with the first two, she was working with the, the, when the last guy came along. And so he had a babysitter and his babysitter spoke solamente Espanol to Will since he was, you know, five weeks old. And so he's bilingual and I'm not. So I use Google Translate to talk to him uh, to test his Spanish. And so I'll, I'll say, you know, for, for dinner, we had, uh, you know, steak and, and mashed potatoes and Google translate. Will say, so how do you say it? And he'll say, it. and I said, uh, you know, when I grew up, I want to be a fireman. He's like, no dad, when I grew up, I want your job. I'm gonna be the head of Morgan Creek. I'm like, okay. So what we try to do is we try to buy things that other people are going to want to buy later. So what would you buy? He says computers with holograms. I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm retired. You're in charge. So Morgan Creek is now run by my 10 year old son. And, uh, I'm just the, the spokes model but uh, it's <laughs> pretty fun. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you for your time today. And uh, we'll, we'll get this out soon. And uh, hopefully everybody- No, this is great. I really, really appreciate Really appreciate all the time you put into prep and uh, great questions. Kept the conversation lively. And uh, I hope uh, all your listeners appreciate all the time and effort you put into to making this podcast uh, a great asset for them. Perfect. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thanks. Be mm -hmm. well.